This audio is from the Axis Church and is part of our sermon series, The Reason We're Here, a study of the book of Acts. For more information, go to theaxischurch.org. The early church, they were unified together. They had one heart. They had one soul. They were preaching and teaching Jesus resurrected. And this resulted in them experiencing great grace, Luke tells us. And then he presents to us a couple contrasting examples of the generosity in the early church. Luke does. You can find it there in chapter 4, verses 36 and 37. He records of a man named Joseph who was given a nickname because of his generosity. He was given a nickname because of his, his encouraging presence. They called him Barnabas. You see, he sold a large piece of land and gave all the proceeds to the church, all of them. He didn't hold back anything. He gave it joyfully, cheerfully, and it was celebrated. That's example one. He gives all. And what we see there with Joseph is honesty and vulnerability, humility and grace. We see sacrifice. We see selflessness, authenticity. He's real. He's clear. He's free. He's giving no strings attached, holding nothing back. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus was doing in the building of his church in the early days. Not only do we have this example, though, he gives us in chapter 5, verse 1, starting our text for today, he gives us another example. Look at chapter 5, verse 1, but a man named, you see, it's, it's like right in the middle of a thought when it starts with, but a man, right? He's, he's contrasting it with what has been spoken before. So there's Joseph But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, they sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, that is complete and full awareness, he kept back for himself, and he used the unique word there for steal or embezzle. He kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. So he sells, and as we'll learn, he pretends that he gives all the proceeds to the church. Now, doesn't that look a lot like Joseph, Barnabas? Yeah, it looks just like him. Selling something, giving all. However, there's deceit here. There's self-centeredness. There's pride. There's covering up. There's hiding. There's pretending. But Peter says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? The great deceiver. Why has the deceiver deceived your heart? To lie to the Holy Spirit. Now, the way that Peter says this, makes it obvious that the Holy Spirit is both God, one who will judge for deceit, as well as the Holy Spirit being a person that can be lied to. It's interesting. So Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have purposed in your heart or contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. Their sin wasn't withholding part of the money. Okay, understand that. That was their right. They could keep what they wanted to keep. It wasn't, it wasn't like commanded that the early church do this. Their sin was in their conspiring to deceive and lying to the young church and ultimately lying to God. This is a lot like Psalm 51 where David, after killing Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, when he had an affair on Bathsheba, which again, the Bible is a really 
open and honest book to, to give us David and to give us Ananias and Sapphira. It's, it's, it's a comfort to know that the Bible's real itself and open. It doesn't hide. Um, but David says, even though he killed Uriah, had an affair on Bathsheba, he says, God, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Well, he sinned against others, yes, but ultimately, ultimately and comparatively in its significance, he has sinned against the holy God. To sin against a sinner is one thing. To sin against the perfect creator and the holy one is quite another. And this, Peter understood this. You've not lied to man, but to God. Now, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. And I believe if that fear was present in Ananias and Sapphira, we wouldn't have heard of them in this way. Just a thought. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, you see the historian in Luke coming out and how he gives these particulars. In about three hours, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. So how much did you sell the land for? And she said, yes, for so much. And Peter, knowing this was not the amount that they actually sold it for, Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Again, Luke is very intelligent. He's using a word that he's already used in describing the culture of the church being of one mind, having one goal, having one spirit, being like-minded, having all things in common. He uses that same word here for agreed together. It literally means to have one mind, to be of one mind. They're conspiring together for sin, just as the early church were conspiring, working together for unity around Jesus and the preaching of the gospel. And in doing so, they are not a part of the church and what God was doing through that young community. So how is it that you have agreed together, come of one mind together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear, power, purity, holiness is experienced here. With great fear, uh, I'm sorry, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. So we have two examples here on the onset of our time for today. And it's impossible to distinguish between the two. There's Barnabas and there's Ananias. One gave sacrificially and honestly. The other loved money and sought the praise of man. They loved that Barnabas was given a nickname, that, that he was praised for, for what he did. They, I, they wanted that too. I want that. Like, yes, let's give this. Let's pretend we can still keep our money because we love money, but we can still get the praise of men like Barnabas got. So it was their way of loving their idols, of the praise of men and the love of money. Again, their sin isn't in their small amount of their gift, nor is it in a small percentage of what they had earned. Their sin is in their deception, and their sin is against God, and there lies our catastrophic problem. You see, it's not that we lie and deceive others. It's that we ultimately, through our sin, we lie to God and we try to deceive Him. It's not merely that we do bad things against people. The most significant fact of our sin is that we sin against our Creator, God, 
the one who Isaiah has spoken of as the one who is holy, 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 and enlisting it three times, he's holy to the superlative degree. We've sinned against him. Ananias and Sapphira sinned against the church community, but also against its founder and creator, God. But if you notice the story here, you'll see that the very thing that they had placed their hope in, their identity, their worth, their value, let's call that an idol, the very thing that was their idol, now betrayed them as they were betraying others for that very idol. It tricked them. You see, idols trick us. It's what they always do. It's bait and switch every time, though we typically feel that we know what's best. And our idols, they're not going to get the best of us. We know how to handle our idol in such a way that it almost looks like worship, like Ananias and Sapphira, but God sees. We think that we're going to get it. We, we know how to sin just enough without it getting us. And even then in that moment, we have no idea how much of a hold it has on us. We won't be tricked, not us. You see, the fact is, is you can't hide your sin. And my parents always told me that every time they'd catch me doing something. Your sin will find you out, and this is true. And this should cause us to tremble. And it might be difficult for us to distinguish between someone who's truly repentant and someone who is a seasoned faker. But as Hebrews 4.13 reminds us, nothing is hidden from God. And as Romans 2.16 says, God will judge the secrets of men. He looks upon the heart. We can only look on the outside, but he sees the heart. So here with Ananias and Sapphira, we see how God views sin. We get a glimpse of the future judgment for all who share in the same heart as Ananias and Sapphira. Yes, God is patient. Yes, God is slow to anger. We often forget that God's patience is designed to lead us to repentance, not lead us into being more bold or aggressive or tolerant with our sin. If Jesus really went through the tormenting hell of the cross to redeem us, and then we neglect that in a pursuit of our sin, what will it be like to stand before the holy God one day when we are clearly seen for who we are? As Hebrews 2.3 asks, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? A danger facing us today is that we're too comfortable with the holy and too comfortable with our sin. We're too comfortable with God in a lot of ways. Especially in our tribe where we celebrate grace and we love how much Christ has endured for us. That should not lead us to greater sin. That should lead us to a greater awareness of our sin and greater repentance by running to the cross early and often. Repenting more freely and much faster. As an electrician, I've been electrician for years, since 97. And as an electrician, I've been shocked several hundred times. Okay, it, it happens often. Most often it would occur when I was too comfortable with the electricity. I felt like I knew what I was doing. I felt like I could get a little easy on the wiring. I didn't have to be as cautious 
because it's easier to work with live wires, by the way. That way you know when you mess up. But it's scary when you mess up. And it hurts when you mess up. But often I would lose respect for the power. And that is when I was in trouble. That's when I had lost the fear, kind of got like I knew what I was doing. That's when I felt like, oh, that's when I would typically get hit by the electricity. It's a beautiful thing. It, it cools our rooms during the summer. It warms our homes during the winter. It provides light to our darkness. It does a number of things for us. But it is still something to be feared. It is still something to be rightly respected because it is also deadly. As much pleasure that comes from it, there's also a lot of deadly power that comes from it. In a similar way, it's as if we no longer revere God and we have little healthy fear of who He is in His awesome purity, in His supreme perfection and majesty. He is Father, yes, but He is still Almighty God. A right view of God helps us. Now, to be honest, even with all this being true, I find this narrative to be the most disturbing narrative that I can think of in the whole New Testament. And I think if you look at this and you're honest, you will feel as if this is offensive. God's action here with this couple, I mean, they're giving to the church. That just reveals our ignorance of sin and what our sin deserves. And it reveals our ignorance of the holiness and perfection of God. Why did they die? Should not be the question as much as, why do we remain alive? How is it that, that I'm allowed to live after doing things so much worse than this? Much more than just one time. How is it that we remain and they were taken? See, the disposition of where our soul sits in relation to sin and His holiness allows us to view this, I believe, correctly. Despite the explosion of growth in the early church, it had moments of weakness and even gross sin just like this. Their death serve as a warning to us. We learn through this that unity is of vital importance to the church. We learn how seriously God considers sin and the things that threaten unity within His church. Now, thankfully, we don't receive judgment for our sins as Ananias and Sapphira did. This sort of swift, immediate judgment is rare in Scripture. However, we must learn that sin isn't to be played around with. And that sin will be dealt with. And the consequences of our sin is always death. Always. The consequences of our sin is always death. Romans 6.23 says the wages, the price, the earnings of sin is death. Now that's where the period is supposed to be placed. Were it not for the love of God and the obedience of Jesus to do what he did for us and the, the generosity of the Holy Spirit to come and change our lives all through grace, the period would remain. Because the price of sin is death, and we all sin, therefore we all deserve to die. But the free gift of God's grace is life through Christ Jesus. We don't deserve that. We don't deserve the love of God. We deserve a period to be placed there after death, the end. 
but Jesus took the penalty that we deserve upon himself and he experienced death for us. So this verse is still true, even for the Christian. The price of sin is death. That's why Jesus died. But for those who are outside of Christ and for those who do not see him as Savior and Lord and submit to his kingship and seek to follow him in obedience to be Christ-like and to honor God with their life and to live as Christians should live, repenting early and often, processing the gospel daily, moment by moment, for those who stand outside of his sacrificial substitutionary work. You take the death penalty upon yourself. You will die not only in this life, but you will die eternally. And that is the terrible news of the gospel. But there is wonderful news in the gospel. If you would but turn to Jesus and see him for what he was doing for you on the cross, you will be forgiven. Why carry death? Why go through life and and worry about death and dread what's coming because you're going to experience separation from why not take on his work for you and experience life after this life please take serious these things thinking through these things is how one becomes a christian don't bypass them dwell on these things think through these things And I beg the Spirit of God to work in your hearts for you to see what Jesus was doing and see him for who he really is so that you will be saved. I pray this for you. Now the historian Luke, he describes the power of God that was at work in and through the church. Looking, starting in verse 12. Now many signs and wonders were done regularly among the people by the hands of the apostles. They were all together in Solomon's portico or Solomon's porch. None of the rest dared join him, but people held them in high esteem. Speaking of the apostles. And more than ever, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. There were a couple thousand added in one day. But more than even that, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord. Multitudes of both men and women. Here's where we go from like nine or 10,000 to thousands and thousands and 10,000s. Like this was radical, this explosion of growth. They even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Now this is, we're going to learn about this in Acts 9, but just as Paul's handkerchief and the robe of Jesus in Luke 8 Just as there's no power in the fabric itself or the shadow that fell, we'll learn that faith, the power is in the faith of the one reaching out to the robe, reaching out to the handkerchief and looking to be under the shadow of God's servant. Faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The power wasn't in the shadow or the cloth. Man, we see here in this portion of Scripture, man, just such sweet favor of God upon His church. Jesus is working hard to build his church here. The Holy Spirit is active, moving in and through his people. The kingdom of God is advancing, and we get a glimpse into this heavenly reality. There's demonstrations of power and presence of the Spirit of God and the kingdom of God. There's stories of redemption. I mean, he summarizes it here in just a few words, but people's lives were radically changed. Stories upon stories upon stories as people experienced redemption, freedom from brokenness, freedom from sickness, freedom from sin. 
And where God is active and where God is moving, you can rest assured that the enemy is active and seeking to steal, kill, and to destroy. He's leading people away into silence. He's leading the the glory of God that deserves to God away to himself. The enemy is at work, as we will see here in verse 17. But the high priest rose up, here's part of this resistance, and all who were with him, that is the party, the Sadducees, which was the dominant political party, and they were filled with jealousy. Jealousy because, man, they used to be the way to God, and now they're preaching Jesus is the way to God. Jealousy because, man, they've been faithful and they haven't seen this type of growth. And now this young group starts and there's thousands and thousands and thousands here gaining fame. And they wanted that fame and that power. Filled with jealousy. I know what that feels like. You do too. And they arrested the apostles, the 12 apostles, and put them in public prison. Now that's where you put convicted felons. All right, that was the worst of the worst in the city. That's where they were put, the common prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life, all the words of Jesus and the gospel. Go and stand in the temple and speak. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak. You kind of get a sense that they were kind of eager to get back in there, right? They're ready. So at daybreak, they got back in and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came, And those who were with him, they called together the council. This is the Sanhedrin, the ruling body of the Jews. All the center of the people of Israel, and they sent to the prison to have them brought in for their hearing. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked. We found the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. How do you explain that? (laughs) Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed, right? I mean, you would be too, wondering what this would come to. I love that jail bars are useless against the unstoppable progress of the gospel. The same power that freed these men from these jail bars is the same power, Christian, that's living in you to cause you to do what God has planned beforehand that you should be doing. Exercise your right to be bold in being obedient to do what God's called you to do and prepared you to do and empowered you to do, regardless of what walls and regardless of what jail bars may be around you, figuratively speaking. He's empowered you to do this. Don't look at what is in front of you as an obstacle. These guys were straight up freed from a prison. The guards never knew what had happened. The doors were still locked. Let's believe as a church that God can still do this sort of stuff. Let's not operate in the European enlightenment that's against the supernatural. Let's actually believe that God is spirit. And let's actually believe that God can do things like this without explanation, without scientific proof, not to be ignorant on these matters, but to have a robust faith that God can be God without us being able to figure out every little thing that he does. Let's do this. Let's ask for this type of faith. And someone came and told them, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. I just want to go back to verse 20. Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people. All the words of the life. Someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Notice that they didn't use their newfound freedom to run in fear so they don't get caught again. 
or just to kind of sneak in like right, you know, at the evening or, or only in the morning or they're not like going out and asking people to come to them. They go right back to doing what they were called to do. Their freedom was used for them to get right back into the game and preaching the gospel because Jesus said, go teach others and go preach this good news. And not to mention the angel that told them to do this just earlier that morning. Now, when the captain with the officers went in and brought them, they brought them not by force, for they were afraid of getting stoned by the people. This speaks of the high respect and regard and the number of people who were aware of Peter, John, and the other ten apostles. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priests questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have well, you've practically filled Jerusalem with your teaching, which is our goal, unapologetically. <laughs> our goal is to fill Nashville, Middle Tennessee with the teaching of the gospel of the real Jesus. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? Are you trying to bring the blood of Jesus upon us? Does anybody catch anything that's happened around the crucifixion with their words right there? Remember, this is the same group of people that said, crucify him. He says, well, I, he's innocent. Like, I don't want his blood on my hands, right? Let his blood be on us and our children. How quickly they've forgotten they've spoken these words. And here they're making Peter out to be a bad guy saying, well, don't, don't, his blood don't need to be on us. It's interesting how deceived they were. But Peter and the apostles answered, this is their answer to this. We must obey God rather than men. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed, by the way, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader, as prince and savior in order to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we're witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God is given to those who obey him. And when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. Similar reaction to Jesus. Don't be surprised at hostility, Christian. It was the same then, it's the same now. Don't be surprised with hostility. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel. Now, this is a fascinating man. When, when my faith is weakened, I look to accounts like this that Luke gives us, and it, it brings courage to my faith. It encourages me. And I think you'll see why. This is a fascinating portion of Scripture here. A Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, highly respected leading rabbi, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people. By the way, he mentors Paul that we're going to learn about in the coming weeks. He stands up and he gave orders to put the men outside for a while. Now see if you can pick up on the wisdom of this man, just in how he starts his dialogue. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you do, or what you're about to do with these men. Be careful with your actions that you're about to take with these guys. For before these days, Thutis rose up. He was a rebel, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. 
Well, and then after him, Judas the Galilean, the guy who led a tax revolt, a tax revolt in year six, he rose up in the days of the census and drew some away, some people after him. But he too perished and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking, whatever this movement is, is of man, it'll fail. Just leave them alone. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So 2016, over 2000 or 2000 years later, which one do you think has been proven true? Did this silence Jesus? Did this silence the gospel? No. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them, literally flogged them, all 12 apostles. Your translation might be flogged. I believe the NIV translates it flogged. That's where they use a leather whip and use up to a maximum of 39 lashes with the whip, believing that 40 would kill a person. A third to the chest, two-thirds to the back. These men were flogged, beaten, within minutes or lashes of their life. They were beaten. They charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then they let them go. And when they had left the presence of the council, they were rejoicing. They were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, for Jesus. This, I believe, is because they were aware of how much Jesus suffered for them. And remember, they were disciples of Jesus. And disciples, by definition, want to be just like their rabbi. They want to respond just like their rabbi, to think like their rabbi, to experience life just like their rabbi. And being good disciples of a rabbi Jesus, they wanted to be like him so much that they were happy. It was a badge of honor to be able to suffer in a similar way because he was whipped like this. They get to be whipped like this too. Isn't this beautiful? Isn't this awesome? Let's celebrate this is their attitude. Now, when I stand and I look at the mirror, <laughs> the mirror that Acts serves us for. And I look at Jeremy, I look in that mirror and that joy and suffering. I don't see, I don't see myself matching up here with these apostles. I doubt you do as well. We'll get to that in a minute. They remembered the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 where he said, blessed are you, blessed Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, flog you and threaten you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. They're obeying Jesus in their response. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. They persecuted the prophets who were before you. This isn't a new thing. There's been persecution before Jesus. There's persecution over Jesus then in the early church. There's persecution for Jesus today. Or is there? 
And every day in the temple, (laughs) don't come back and teach in the temple. Every day in the temple and from house to house, publicly, privately, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. The Messiah is Jesus. They kept going at it. The remarkable boldness in the face of danger that we see the apostles in the early church here having is astounding. It's motivating, but it is super convicting. God clearly answers their prayer that they prayed in chapter 4 for boldness and confidence. In closing, I want us to ask three questions that come from our time here in chapter 5. One, what is the state of your heart? What is the state of your heart? When you see the deceitful hearts of Ananias and Sapphira and the resulting judgment for their sin, are you not blown away at the grace that you receive thousands of times a day when you don't get what you deserve? You know, others can see, can't see inside your heart. Others can't see inside your heart to determine whether you're Barnabas or Ananias. But these secret things are no secret to God. With lips, we proclaim that Jesus is Lord, yet we live as if he is dead and his word does not matter. Please don't deceive yourself into thinking that you're tricking God. Their unconfessed and covered sin affected the early church, the culture of authenticity, of vulnerability. Their sin affected the church. Your sin affects the Axis church. Your sin affects your life. Your sin affects affects those that you're in community with. Your sin affects your relationship with God. Jesus frees us from what we deserve by taking upon himself what he doesn't deserve. Yet we casually and almost hobby-like tolerate sin. Do we not? We're very comfortable with sin. My prayer is that we would take seriously the words of Paul in Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can he who died to sin still live in it and make habit of it? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. And do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Hear this today. You might be fooling others, but you can't and you won't fool God. And my hope is that if you've realized that you've harbored sin, that you've tolerated sin in your heart, that you've allowed sin to get too comfortable in your life, that you would tell that to God. That you would tell him, I'm too comfortable with this. I'm, I'm, I'm getting too at home with this. This is, this used to be an unwelcome visitor. Now it's a comfort to me. And I need you to change the way I view this. Change my desire for this. God knows already. Your sin's not a surprise to him. It's why he sent Jesus. Don't try fixing it yourself. For goodness sake, don't try to get better by trying harder. 
Run to Jesus. Tell him of your sin and your pleasure for sin and how much fun you find in that sin and ask him to change your heart in regards to that to where you begin to treasure him over these sins and where you find hope and identity and worth not in those things but in the things of God. The church needs this from you. The church needs you to take your sin and holiness seriously. Your family needs you to take your sin seriously, especially if there's unbelievers in your family. Your neighbors need you to take your sin seriously, especially if they're unbelievers. God will help you. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you. He will help you with this. Secondly, what do you live for? What do you value? What do you cherish? What do you treasure? These early Christians, they had a desire to obey God more than to try to please men. They treasured Jesus. They were utterly compelled to preach and teach of Jesus. They had a greater fear of God than man. But do we? Do you? Do you know what it's like to do radical things for the sake of the gospel? Do you know what it's like to go and much like the man in Matthew 13, 44, to go sell everything to buy the field because he found treasure in it? Do you know what it's like to do something absurd like this because there's something of treasure that lies ahead and it's worth sacrificing for? Sure you do. You've done this before, but, but have you seen God as this surpassing treasure? Do you view him? And obedience to him is something worth cherishing. The early Christians did. They had a proper view of God. And that perspective informed all other aspects of their lives. And it guided them holistically through all of their lives. God tells us to live as missionaries. He tells us to live as missionaries for his glory and the salvation of the world. All through the Bible. This is a command for God's people to be his representatives, his ambassadors. The same is true for you. We teach it all the time. Every Christian, a missionary. Every Christian, a disciple maker. Every Christian, a disciple. This is your identity. This is your calling. This is living in obedience to the Great Commission. But at the same time, the world is telling us to fit in, to be tolerant, to seek popularity, to seek fame, prominence, and comfort. So I see the tug of war. But who will you obey? Who will you pledge allegiance to? Who will you submit to? Who do you have a greater fear of? Will you live for God because you've been perfectly accepted by Him? Or will you live for the world and ultimately yourself because you fear being rejected by them? What do you cherish? What do you treasure? You live for what you treasure. My prayer is that we will treasure the things that are of God. And I know that if we ask the Holy Spirit to help us here, He will. The last question I have for us is, what are you willing to experience dishonor for? Is it for the things of the gospel? Has it ever happened? Even one time? Have you ever been dishonored for, for teaching and telling of Jesus. This was normal for the early church. This is a mirror for us. Have you ever 
experience dishonor for the sake of the gospel. What are you expecting as a follower of Jesus? I mean, Jesus' life was marked with rejection and loneliness and poverty and persecution and hunger and temptation and suffering and finally death. Why would you expect anything different? Practically, are you negatively talked about because of your teaching and telling of Jesus Christ? We're perhaps, we, we're made fun of for things that we choose to champion or propagate in this life. Something that we sell or some activity that we're involved in or our sports team, right? We'll go to away stadiums. Auburn fans will go to Tuscaloosa, right? And they'll, they'll wear their team's colors to be persecuted in that sense, to be belittled, to, to be dishonored. And they'll do it ridiculously. But does that same boldness for a cause play out at all in Christianity for you? Many of us are joked about because of trying to pursue a dream in this wonderful city. People wondering when you're going to make it. You endure dishonor for something that you're cherishing, that you're treasuring, that you hope to have one day. We're okay with that, though, for the most part. But when it comes to our faith in Jesus, it's like that's a different story. And my hope is that if we're gossiped about or shunned or belittled in any way, it will be more frequently because the gospel of Jesus Christ and that if we are shunned for the gospel, we will take that as an opportunity, taking a lesson from the apostles, use that opportunity to preach even more boldly for, for Jesus and not to recluse back to silence. May God relinquish the passivity and apathy and timidity and call forth courage in us today. The quota for religious cowards has long been met our world needs gospel beasts and evangelists, monsters who will stand and boldly proclaim Jesus crucified, buried, risen, and coming again. Will you be one that will stand forward and boldly tell your neighbors, your family, your friends, your co-workers of Jesus so that it becomes hard to get to hell from Middle Tennessee? Please. Pray for the Holy Spirit to work in your heart to produce this boldness, to be able to live out the truth that if God be for us, who can stand against us? If you want stories of redemption to tell, if you want your family and friends to know Jesus, you're going to have to live boldly telling them about Jesus and be ready for persecution, but it's okay. The Holy Spirit's there. God is present and he will help you. Jesus, Lord, thank you for your work for us. God, help us to trust you, help us to rightly fear you, to respect you, honor, and obey you. Give us the strength to do these things. Lord, along with the things that we as Christians are supposed to treasure and cherish, Lord, would, would we rid ourselves of things that aren't supposed to be attached to our hearts, that we're not supposed to be treasuring. Lord, help us to rightly use what we have and treasure only things that Christians should treasure.
Lord, help us hold lightly and loosely the things that, that aren't important. Give us wisdom and discernment of spirit to be able to determine what is helpful, what is harmful, what is good, and then what is to be treasured. God, produce boldness where we are timid. Produce action and obedience where we have sin and disobedience. God, produce in us proper concern and attention where apathy reigns in our hearts. Lord, give us the needed toughness of skin where we are too sensitive to what others may think and produce in us the fruit of the Spirit where the fruit of our flesh is so present and active. Lord, lead us to repentance. Lead us to confession. Allow us to walk in the light as you are in the light so that we can have freedom from our sin, freedom to be generous like Barnabas. Lord, convict us in areas where we are more like Ananias, and Sapphira, would we learn from this story today? Lord, allow us to see you move in the church today as you moved in the early church for the salvation of Middle Tennessee and for the salvation of the world. We remember your work for us. Thank you for your sacrificial work on our behalf. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen.